Welcome to the Head to the Bar podcast. What you're about to hear is provided for general information purposes and support only, and it's not legal education, and it's certainly not legal advice. You should independently check the details that we're just about to discuss. In today's discussion, we're going to deal with two quite disparate topics simply because I haven't quite finished criminal procedure. So we're going to spend the first 15 to 20 minutes just wrapping up sentencing and I'll take the opportunity to link together some of the provisions and concepts that we've been looking at for the last two discussions. And then we will bravely commence civil procedure. And I say bravely on my own part because, of course, I'm well out of specialty teaching or discussing or in any way referring to civil procedure. So we're going to start with a relatively straightforward topic of the Civil Procedure Act. Some of the provisions we've already looked at in other contexts, some of the provisions are new to us. And in relation to some of the provisions, I'm going to foreshadow their linkages with the other substantial area that you're going to be discussing in the bar exam, which is the civil procedure rules. So as you may be aware, particularly those who have the expertise in civil, the Civil Procedure Act naturally stands alone and creates all sorts of new and interesting obligations on practitioners and parties in their conduct as civil uh, procedures before the civil proceedings before the court. But in relation to some of the parts, they cross-reference very nicely with the uh, rules. And so I'm going to foreshadow some of those linkages as we go. But first, we'll finish up sentencing. And what I'm going about to do is to summarise each of the matters that would be addressed or would need to be addressed in a plea and mitigation of penalty, or if you were given the responsibility of writing reasons for sentence. So I've now mentioned a few times, but the way that sentencing has been examined in past bar exams, as will become clear once you start doing revision, is one or both of the following. You might be asked a a specific question, whether it's multiple choice, whether it's a short answer question, about the suitability of a particular disposition and you need to demonstrate an understanding of the conditions that may be imposed, for instance, on a community corrections order or a, uh, a, an order of uh, imprisonment that requires, for instance, a parole order. So that justifies the extent to which we've discussed each of those particular provisions governing um, the imposition of certain named penalties. But just as commonly, candidates are asked to um, uh, set out the matters that might be taken into account in the imposition of sentence in a particular case and provide advice as to a realistic penalty that might be imposed. And a related topic there is application for summary jurisdiction, that is um, where you have to discuss the suitability of an indictable matter to proceed through to magistrate's court jurisdiction. And part of that will be your realistic interpretation as to whether two years of imprisonment or less may be imposed on any particular penalty and five years in aggregation. So let's unite each of the provisions that we've looked at and uh, come to a structure where you can slot in the circumstances of the particular fact pattern in the exam. 
Now, to start with, um, a plain mitigation of penalty or reasons for sentence uh, for reasons associated with tradition and structure and also the way that the Sentencing Act is organised, which, as we'll discuss, tends to start with circumstances of offence before moving on to circumstances of offender. The first portion of setting out the plea or the sentence requires you to summarise and consider the legal significance of the circumstances of the particular offence or more than one offence. So that can be your major heading. And the types of matters that you'd refer to under that major heading include the following. And here you may wish to revisit Section 5, Subsection 2 of the Sentencing Act, but some of them are intuitive based on the circumstances of the fact pattern. So major heading circumstances of offence. You'll need to identify any circumstances of aggravation. Now, most of these are largely intuitive where you look at the circumstances of offending described and mentally fraction how you consider that the particular case becomes more serious or onerous than the another similar case so if your client is charged with intentionally causing injury as you can understand there'll be a spectrum of injuries arising some of them will be less serious examples of causing injury and to give you an example they might involve uh, pain or bruising whereas some others might involve a more extreme example of injury and you'd need to identify and grapple with that We'll come to the status of the victim in due course, um, but that's also a matter that um, speaks to the seriousness of the offence. Use of a weapon, uh, breach of trust, look to the circumstances and see what in your mind for that one moment shocks the conscience and they can be identified under pressure of time, even in bullet points. So you accept and concede the matters which aggravate offending. And conversely, and in that same discussion, you might want to consider as you're reading through the problem whether there are any factors which point in the other direction, which can justify your conclusion in that discussion of the circumstances of offence, that this the offence lacks some of the aggravating factors of other similar offences. So uh, to use those same examples flipped, if the example of the injury was of the more modest end of the range available for such an offence, then you would mention that. The absence of company, the absence of weapon, the absence of a breach of trust. And sometimes in you know when you come to aggregate the circumstances of offending, um, the lack of aggravating factors may be as good as it gets in the way of mitigation of offending. Now, looking at the factors in 5 subsection 2 of the Sentencing Act, which I'd commended to you as being a pretty good checklist of the circumstances that you would need to refer to, and it may be that you, you know, prepare a couple of bullet points, um, you know, sort of half a dozen bullet points as being the ones that you need to mention. But some of the matters that you might want to consider discussing are forming a view as to the objective seriousness and gravity of the offence, you need to note and accept the effect on the victim. Uh, so some victims may enjoy a speedy recovery, others may not. And you may be assisted by a victim impact statement in that regard. And one of the matters which will need to be mentioned, which doesn't squarely fall within circumstances of the offence, but it foreshadows personal circumstances, would be uh, the plea of guilty if there was one and its timing. And a related point is whether the plea is accompanied by remorse. 
At the very minimum, a plea of guilty enjoys a discount for its utilitarian effect, by which I mean that it saves the court the time of the trial, it saves the victim and the other witnesses the inconvenience and uh, stress of testifying. And so that is so even if the accused is remorseless. But that's not often the case. Often there is some degree of contrition and acceptance of responsibility. And if that is the case, then that needs to be mentioned and drawn out. You may remember there that the um, Sentencing Act obliges a sentencing judge to quantify the sentence that would otherwise have been imposed but for the plea of guilty under Section 6 AAA of the Sentencing Act. Now, the convention is for that to be done at the very end, but if you consider it to be a matter relevant to your evaluation and you're concerned that you might otherwise miss it, you can deal with it when you deal with the plea of guilty and timing. Then you may wish to focus your your uh, discussion to personal circumstances. So the age of the accused, their uh, professional history, their relationship history, any particular medical, psychological circumstances that may bear into the sentencing process, including prospects for rehabilitation, and their capacity to pay a fine if it is relevant in the circumstances of the case. Now, at this point, or at another point, it's entirely a matter for you, you might need to turn your attention to the previous history of the accused. So if they are of good previous history, then you might think that that enjoys considerable weight under Section 6 of the Sentencing Act if it is such a case. So there you would address the fact that it's their first appearance before the court. If the circumstances suggest it has been of salutary effect, then you would mention that. And, of course, that may feed in later to your submission as to whether a conviction or non-conviction outcome ought to be recorded. Even if it's adverse, of course, you need to address it. Is it the case that uh, your client has other similar prior convictions or could be different prior convictions? It will feed into the court's evaluation of prospects for rehabilitation as well as previous character. So that needs to be mentioned and its significance uh, discussed. Now, once you've exhausted the discussion of uh, personal circumstances, Try not to overlook sentencing principles and purposes. So in relation to principles, I have referred periodically to common law principles that influence the exercise of the sentencing discretion. You wouldn't need to refer to all of these in your answer to an exam, but it might give the answer a bit of polish. More likely, um, it will give in-court appearances some polish to tackle with the relevant um, principles um, that lying outside sometimes the Sentencing Act that are relevant. You'll remember proportionality, um, which is often considered to be the primary um, purpose of sentencing, so that the disposition ought be proportionate to the circumstances of the offence, having regard to the circumstances of the offender. Another relevant sentencing purpose at common law is parsimony, and the idea that a sentencing judge should impose the least onerous disposition available that is proportionate to all of the circumstances of the offence, including the offender. And as we discussed, that might mean that an undertaking um, ought to be imposed in favour of a fine if it turns out an undertaking is in a proportionate sentence and so on and so forth, all the way from a community correction order prior to the imposition of imprisonment. A factor that has not been mentioned but could be uh, in real life is parity which is the concept, uh, it's supplemented in the Sentencing Act by current sentencing practices, 
which means sentences imposed in other similar cases. But parity is a principle that uh, applies within a case where there is more than one accused facing a disposition for the same or similar offences. So one of the sentencing obligations and relevant principles is that the court must turn its mind to the fact that there should be some proportionate um, penalty imposed as between co-offenders. Of course, differentiating as to differences in charge, differences in role and differences in prior history and, of course, totality. So not only are proportionate individual sentences imposed, um, but the last objective is to make sure that if there are going to be successive penalties imposed, that the net result is still proportionate and it doesn't result in the imposition of a crushing sentence overall. We talked about that in relation to the context of degrees of uh, concurrency versus accumulation and the idea that if there had been uh, separate thefts committed on an evening, for instance, um, it might be that 12 months is imposed on each. I'm pulling these numbers out of thin air. Um, but that the degree of accumulation might be one month, two months, three months on each occasion or the major occasion, so that at the end of the day, we don't end up with stacks on the mill and the idea of five years for five thefts occurring over a short period of time united in purpose. The principles for which sentence should be imposed, as you may remember, are outlined in Section 5, Subsection 1 of the Sentencing Act. So they were, and I'm not going to take you back through this, um, probably much to your relief, punishment, deterrence, rehabilitation and so forth. So have a look at the circumstances of the particular case and see which loom large. Is there some um, personality, not shortcoming, but difficulty from which the accused could benefit with treatment and time, in which case rehabilitation might need to be emphasised or might appropriately be emphasised? Punishment and denunciation, well, are we looking at a particularly serious version of the offence? Are we looking at a sequence of offending or offending in the context of a prior criminal history that calls for that punishment and denunciation? Adapt the principles to the circumstances of the case. And then lastly, it needs to conclude with a realistic submission as to penalty. This is the great unknown, except for criminal practitioners who are sitting the exam. For those who don't have a criminal background, this is the leap into the unknown. Don't assume that a magistrate's court is going to impose immediate custody. You need to have a look at the objective seriousness of the offence and look at how compelling the personal circumstances are. Don't be afraid to impose a mid-range penalty, such as a CCO, which, as you may remember, speaks to a number of different purposes for sentencing. At the end of the day, it's better to conclude with a submission as to penalty than to think it's too hard and not make a submission in that regard. The fact that you're making a submission speaks to the fact that you understand a plea in mitigation of penalty concludes with that submission as to the class of available penalty. And a linked issue might be, particularly in the magistrate's court, having regard to summary offences or indictable offences, triable summarily, whether your client, for instance, if they have no prior criminal history, um, might escape the recording of a conviction if an undertaking, a fine or a community corrections order is imposed. So that's a ready reckoner as to the sorts of matters that you might need to refer to. Um, and as you practice uh, past papers and so forth, you might become uh, quicker 
at, at picking out the points that you need to refer to. If overwhelmed um, by anxiety and lack of clarity, start with circumstances of offence, come to a conclusion as to objective seriousness, effect on victim, look at play of guilty if there is one, look at personal circumstances and then conclude with principles and a submission. And that finally brings an end to criminal procedure. Um, we took it our time. I think we have about five to six sessions left in relation to civil procedure and then we will shift to revision. So as mentioned, um, while the principal examinable legislation in terms of volume is the civil procedure rules, with some omissions, it was interesting to have a look at some of the matters which troubled us so much as undergraduates, such as jurisdiction, aren't expressly examined. We're looking really deeply at procedure rather than those matters of principle. So let's get started then on the Civil Procedure Act. As mentioned, some of this is familiar. We've had a look at it in the context of ethics and some of it is new. Our first examinable area is Chapter 1, which is preliminary, and we need to note Sections 1, 4 and 6. So Section 1 of the Civil Procedure Act, which we haven't touched on, noted that the purpose of the act, purposes of the Act included to reform and modernise the laws, practice, procedures and processes relating to civil proceedings. Relevantly, 1C, to provide for an overarching purpose in relation to the conduct of civil proceedings to facilitate the just, efficient, timely and cost-effective resolution of the real issues in dispute. And Section 1 continues by stating that the Act provides for overarching obligations for participants in civil proceedings to improve standards of conduct in litigation and to note that the court's powers are expanded in relation to costs and case management powers. So pausing here to note um, that there's a clear thrust and emphasis of Section 1 and its stated purposes and pre-2010, to offer a historical observation, um, the court was less empowered in relation to its management uh, obligations and responsibilities than it is under the Civil Procedure Act. And a sideline was, uh, culturally, that lawyers were more tolerant and um, really less able to react to tactics including stalling. So uh, when the Civil Procedure Act of 2010 was introduced, it revolutionised certain aspects of case management and the sanctions for parties who sought to move away from the uh, justice and efficiency model provided by the Act. Note under Section 4, application, that it applies to all civil proceedings irrespective of the tier of the court that you're dealing with. But in circumstances in which you've been told that the other examinable act or, sorry, the other examinable legislation is the uh, Supreme Court rules in civil procedure, you can infer from the fact that that's the Supreme Court that you're going to be eventually dealing with the powers and procedures of that court. Section 6 is the last examinable provision and it is for noting, which is that the Act is intended to sit happily with the Charter and the Doctrine of Privilege. So we then need to move on to Chapter 2 of the Act and some of this is uh, familiar to us, thank heavens. So the heading of Chapter 2 is Overarching Purpose and Obligations and we start with Part 2.1, Our Old Friend, Overarching Purpose. There's only one, as you may remember from our discussion of ethics, and 
its purpose, the purpose of the Act and rules, including the Supreme Court rules, which postdate this Act by five years. The overarching purpose of the Act and the rules is to facilitate the just, efficient, timely and cost-effective resolution of the real issues in dispute. And it can be achieved in a number of different ways. Seven subsection two, determination of the proceeding by the court, but not necessarily so. So civil procedures are not necessarily supposed to culminate in a, a ruling by the court. It could be via agreement between the parties and appropriate dispute resolution processes, which we'll get to in due course, possibly not in this discussion, maybe in the next. And note, please, the use of appropriate dispute resolution. In 2010, there was a sea change in discussion of what ADR stood for. So it used to mean alternative dispute resolution, but by, via the introduction of that expression, appropriate dispute resolution, the, the Act expressly acknowledges that the most appropriate mechanism of dispute may not be adjudication. So it could be looking at that definition, a process attended or participated in by a party for the purpose of negotiating a settlement of the civil proceeding in its entirety, or resolving or narrowing the issues in dispute. Of course, it can include mediation, expert determination, arbitration or other. And just to spoil the surprise in relation to ADR, which we'll get to under Chapter 5 of the Civil Procedure Act in due course, whilst traditionally ADR processes required the parties' agreement inherently as, as an ingredient to the ADR process, the Civil Procedure Act may involve court-mandated ADR, and so that can take the choice away from the parties. The traditionalists at this point are um, having their hair grey in anticipation of the fact that ADR might be against the will of the participants. Section 8 obliges the court to seek to give effect to the overarching purpose, and it's as simple as that. So it may be that the the court can be urged into a certain direction or can um, make a finding of its own initiative if in a scenario within the exam you find that your opponent is acting um, so as to delay procedures or is otherwise acting unethically. And this will be the first of about 10 reminders to you of the integration, of course, between these procedures and other areas that, of the law that we've discussed, including ethics and including evidence. Section 9 gives the court power to further the uh, overarching purpose. So Section 7 was the overarching purpose itself, but Section 9 actually provides the court with the tools that it needs to further that purpose rather than sitting and stating the overarching purpose. So the court shall further the overarching purpose by having regard to the following objects. And have a look at that list, the just determination of the civil proceeding, but also collateral matters, public interest in early settlement of disputes by agreement between parties. So that might give the court, for instance, the power to lean heavily into an indication as a, in a managerial capacity about the merits of a particular claim. Prior to the introduction of the Civil Procedure Act and its managerial language, it might have been seen to be non-judicial to weigh so substantially into either that management task or even that indication task. But now it's expressly provided by Section 9.1b, for instance, that a managerial judge um, can urge that resolution. 
and the efficient conduct of the business and court and so forth. Nine, uh, one e minimising any delay between commencement and its listing for trial. So they're the matters that the court must take into account and further. Under subsection two, there is a list of matters that the court may have regard to in the process of fulfilling its obligations under subsection one. So they include, but are not limited to the extent to which parties have complied with any mandatory or voluntary pre-litigation processes, or the extent to which they've used reasonable endeavours to resolve the dispute by agreement or to limit the issues in dispute, and so on and so forth. And you'll see a foreshadowing under 9 subsection 2 of the particular responsibilities that the parties have under their overarching obligations. So then we turn to part 2.2, application of the overarching obligations and sections 10 to 15. So now I'm repeating myself, but you'll recall that we looked at this in a slightly different context. The overarching obligations apply to legal practitioners and we're aware of that because we looked at ethical obligations imposed on barristers by the various sets of rules. But they're not limited to lawyers, of course. The overarching obligations also apply to any persons who are a party, any law practice acting for or on behalf of a party. So, for instance, if there is a clerk who is undertaking responsibilities uh, in connection with the file, they're also bound by the obligations. And any person who provides financial assistance or other assistance to any party, insofar as that person exercises any direct or indirect control or any influence over the conduct of civil proceedings. And that may include an insurer or litigation funder, but they don't apply to witnesses, including expert witnesses, who we will learn carry their own obligations. And that is in part 4.6 of the Act. Section 11 of the Act, uh, the overarching obligations apply to each stage of the proceedings, including interlocutory applications or proceedings, appeals and ADR processes within the civil proceeding. And the overarching obligations will prevail over any legal, contractual or other obligations which a person may have, Section 12 of the Civil Procedure Act. So they carry quite the priority. See Section 13 to the extent that the overarching obligations apply to legal practitioners and integrate that into your ethics notes if you are cross-referencing them as I've encouraged you to do. Section 14, another obligation, legal practitioners not to cause the client to contravene overarching obligations. And, of course, Section 15, the legal practitioner's duty to the court continues. So that, that was Sections 10 to 15. And the next batch of provisions are those that I've touched on earlier, so we'll now revisit those just to refresh your memory, which are the overarching obligations, Part 2.3 of the Act, and sanctions for contravening the overarching obligations, part 2.4. I'll itemise these rather than discuss them in detail because we have already looked at them. So section 16, the paramount duty is on a person to whom the overarching obligations apply, lawyers and parties, etc. The paramount duty is to further the administration of justice in relation to any civil proceeding. Okay, so that's point one in, at all stages of the proceeding. Section 17 reminded the parties of their overarching obligation to act honestly. 
So note these are obligations. They're all intended separately and concurrently to satisfy the overarching purpose, which was Section 7. So these are, could be seen as either collateral to or supporting the overarching purpose. And they're not exhaustive, but they are the principal ones. Section 18 was that requirement of proper basis so the lawyers and parties and anyone else to whom the overarching obligations apply must not make any claim or response to any claim in a civil proceeding that is frivolous, vexatious and abusive process or doesn't on the factual and legal material available to the person at the time of making the claim or responding to the claim have a proper basis. Next is section 19. That was the overarching obligation only to take steps to resolve or determine the dispute. So sideways steps are not acceptable and backward steps such as time wasting are also not acceptable. Section 20 was that obligation to cooperate with the parties to a civil proceeding and to the court. You can imagine the myriad ways that these provisions are being tested. They're so convenient, as I've uh, let you know in the past, because they simultaneously assess civil procedure as well as ethics. Section 21, the obligation not to mislead or deceive or engage in conduct that's likely to mislead or deceive. So that includes to witnesses, to parties and colleagues um, in connection with the case and also the court. Section 22 was the overarching obligation to use reasonable endeavours to resolve the dispute. So at all times, the parties and their lawyers must engage in those reasonable endeavours to resolve a dispute by agreement, um, including appropriate dispute resolution, unless it's not in the interest of justice to do so or the dispute is of such a nature that only judicial determination is appropriate. So the circumstances in which the parties may be excused from this obligation, it's not an exhaustive list, but I just offer these by way of observation, but it might include where the it creates a, a, a unique point of law in application to the facts of the case. So that even though it is open to the parties to reach an agreement, it might be considered that that would not be in the interests of justice to do so and or the dispute is of such a nature that only judicial determination is appropriate because of that novel point of law that would settle an area of law that at that time was indeterminate. Note section 23, if a person to whom the overarching obligations can't resolve a dispute in its entirety by agreement, the lawyers and parties must still use their reasonable endeavours to try to refine the issues that are live. So that is to resolve by agreement any issues in dispute that can be resolved in that way to narrow the scope of the remaining issues in dispute unless we're um, familiar with this language from the previous section. It's not in the interests of justice to do so or the dispute is of such a nature that only judicial determination is appropriate. So that expressly indicates under Section 23 of the Civil Procedure Act that if there are certain parts of the claim that can be resolved by agreement without the necessity of needing to put the party to proof, then that process, of course, should be actively engaged in. Section 24, a person to whom the overarching obligations apply must use reasonable endeavours to ensure that legal costs and other costs incurred in connection with the civil proceeding are reasonable and proportionate to the complexity or importance of the issues in dispute and the amount in dispute. And finally, 
the last three. There's an overarching obligation to minimise delay, which is self-evident. There's an overarching obligation to disclose the existence of documents, which we will cross-reference. Please note this provision, Section 26, and its relationship with Part 4.3 of the Civil Procedure Act, which we'll get to in the next discussion, as well as Discovery Order 29 of the Supreme Court General Civil Procedure Rules. So not only are there disclosure obligations, um, but it becomes an overarching obligation. So it's not just a, a civil procedural obligation, it's an overarching obligation with the potential consequences that follow. Lastly, Section 27 provides that information and documents disclosed under that disclosure obligation in Section 26 then bind the recipient to an overarching obligation not to use the information or documents or permit the information or documents to be used for a purpose other than in connection with a civil proceeding. So Section 26 created an overarching obligation in relation to discovery obligations. Section 27 is its peer, which is that the person who then receives the documents is bound by an overarching obligation to confine the use of those documents to the particular proceeding. We then turn to part 2.4 and the frightening sanctions that might arise for contravening the overarching obligations. Could you please fuse this section of notes with the immediately preceding section? In that, if there is a suggestion that a party or a lawyer has breached the overarching obligations and a pause there, it may not be one. That's why I speak in plural. So it may be a fact pattern that's broad enough that more than one overarching obligation is potentially breached. In the same frame of your answer, you then go on and discuss what the consequences may be for contravention. So if it is a barrister, then there may be ethical consequences that can be discussed under the ethical rules, but there are also potentially consequences that can take place in court and in association with court. So Section 28 first, firstly indicates that in exercising any power in relation to a civil proceeding, and we're going to deal with a lot of powers and procedural orders that can be made, the court may take into account any contravention of the overarching obligations. And in exercising its discretion as to costs, Section 28, subsection 2, a court may take into account any contravention of overarching obligations. So could you please fuse that discussion with the, our discussion of costs which will take place in one of the pending discussions, although I note that the only uh, reference to costs in the examinable orders at this point seems to be Order 62, Security for Costs. So it may be that any knowledge and experience, including practical experience you have with the application of Order 63 of the Supreme Court rules in relation to costs, you'll be frustrated from including in an answer because the only examinable course is this provision of the Civil Procedure Act that uh, we're discussing. So note under Section 28, a court may take into account any contravention of the overarching obligations in exercising its discretion as to costs but your consideration of the court's discretion as to costs will be a matter that you can apply in practice rather than need to know for the bar exam. Final three provisions. Under section 29, if the court satisfied on the balance of probabilities a person has contravened any overarching obligation, the court may make any order it considers appropriate in the interests of justice including but not limited to 
A is a contribution to or all of the legal costs or other costs or expenses of any person arising from that contravention. It can indeed be payable immediately and enforceable immediately. And you'll have a look at the remaining provisions, any other order that the court considers to be in the interests of any person who has been prejudicially affected by the contravention of the overarching obligations. And such an order can be precipitated, 29 subsection 2, on the application of any party to the civil proceeding, perhaps understandably, but also any other person who, in the opinion of the court, has a sufficient interest in the proceeding or on the court's own motion. Section 30 is the procedure for bringing applications for orders under Section 27. So it can be made, uh, sorry, it is to be made in the court in which the civil proceeding was or is being heard and in accordance with the rules of the court. The last provision that we'll look at in this batch is Section 31, a purely procedural adjunct to that substantive application. So a person may apply for an extension of time to apply an order. So if you look at um, deep down in Section 30, you'll see um, the, the time limitations for bringing an order, but the court has uh, the power to entertain an application for extension of time. So that really brings to an end both those familiar provisions with some new. In the next discussion, we'll continue with the Civil Procedure Act, Chapter 4. And just as I've been doing, I'm going to cross-reference um, the provisions that we're looking at, for instance, with respect to summary judgment, back to the civil procedure rules and expert witnesses, uh, to the uh, evidentiary provisions we've looked at before we start doing a deep dig into those civil procedure rules themselves. Thank you for listening to the Head to the Bar podcast. For outlines, links to resources and other downloads, please refer to the show notes.